0: Well, our passage for our study this evening is 1 Kings chapter 5, 1 Kings chapter 5, and before we reach, let's uh, bow our heads once again in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you give us, give us your word to reveal more of yourself to us, and uh, we pray that this would be equally true of this passage, that we have that sense of the greatness of God the wonder of your plans and purposes and promises, and that you would energize us to serve you uh, in wonderful ways, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 So 1 Kings chapter 5, and uh, Solomon has organized his kingdom in chapter 4, and uh, he now has uh, another idea in chapter 5, uh, verse 1. Now Hiram, king of Tyre, sent his servants to Solomon when he heard that they had anointed him king in place of his father. For Hiram always loved David. And Solomon sent word to Hiram, You know that David, my father, could not build a house for the name of the Lord his God because of the warfare with which his enemies surrounded him until the Lord put them under the soles of his feet. But now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side, there is neither adversary nor misfortune. And so I intend to build a house for the name of the Lord my God, as the Lord said to David my father, your son whom I will set on your throne in your place shall build the house for my name. Now therefore command that cedars of Lebanon be cut for me, and my servants will join your servants and will... Uh, And I will pay you for your servants such wages as you set, for you know that there is no one among us uh, who knows how to cut timber like the Sidonians. As soon as Hiram heard the words of Solomon, he rejoiced greatly and said, Blessed be the Lord this day who has given to David a wise son to be over this great people. And Hiram sent to Solomon saying, I have heard the message that you have sent me, I am ready to do all that you desire in the, manner of, uh, in the matter of cedar and cypress timber. My servant shall bring it down to the sea from Lebanon, and I will make it into rafts to go by sea to the place you direct, and I will have them broken up there, and you shall receive it, and you shall meet my, uh, and you shall meet my wishes, providing food from my household. So Hiram supplied Solomon with all the timber of cedar and cypress that that he desired, while well, Solomon gave Hiram 200 cores of wheat as food for his household, and uh, sorry, 20,000 cores of wheat as food for his household, and 20,000 cores of pressed oil. Solomon gave this to Hiram year by year, and the Lord gave Solomon wisdom as he promised him. and there was peace between Hiram and Solomon, and the two of them made a treaty. King Solomon drafted forced labor out of all Israel and the draft numbered 30,000 men and he sent them to Lebanon, 10,000 a month in shifts. They would be a month in Lebanon and two months at home. Adoniram was in charge of the draft. Solomon also had 70,000 burden bearers and 80,000 stone cutters in the hill country. Besides Solomon's 3,300 chief officers who were over the work, who had charge of the people who carried on the work. At the king's command, they quarried out great costly stones in order to lay the foundation of the house with dressed stones. So Solomon's builders and Hiram's builders and the men of Gebal did did the cutting and prepared the timber and the stone to build the house. So we've been following uh, the development of Solomon as a king over Israel after the death of David. David we've seen how he has uh, been established on the throne how he has then asked the Lord for wisdom to rule such a great people um, and to rule well and God gave him that gift of wisdom and and then we've begun to see how is how this wisdom has had its effects and how the uh, the the nation was structured both in terms of his cabinet uh, as it were his uh, People sit at his table and uh, basically run various aspects of the kingdom. And in the regions, as the officials are dispersed around the regions to, to gather the, uh, the needs of the, uh, the household of Solomon uh, from the, the regions. And uh, we've seen how the, the people benefited. From the wisdom of his rule, everybody who was sitting under the vine and fig tree, that they were enjoying and contentment and safety under his rule. A uh, marvelous uh, picture of uh, contentment. And we noted last time how this, this whole picture of uh, the kingdom uh, prefigures uh, the coming of the kingdom of God and the coming of the king of kings and lord of lords. Uh, Jesus Christ who will sit on the throne of David ultimately and uh, this is what God does with his word he sort of sets up these kind of historical events that are actually prefiguring of something greater yet to come and uh, this is a marvelous uh, thing and there's so much to, therefore that we can learn um, about the, the kingdom of God uh, we too have access to wisdom uh, Jesus Christ is our wisdom as well as, as well as our salvation and our redemption, as 1 Corinthians one thirty tells us. But he's also our wisdom. And so as we come into relationship with God through Jesus Christ, so his wisdom comes to us as we are united with Jesus Christ. He is wisdom, therefore we all, all the characteristics of Christ begin to work into our lives. And uh, we too grow in wisdom. Uh, as we are seeking his his face, so there's there's much that we can learn since we are in this kingdom by looking at Solomon. And much we can learn about today. Uh, and so you know, that's what I intend to do in this uh, this chapter today. We're, we're looking at this chapter, and as uh, we move on to a piece of uh, as it were un- unfinished business for Solomon, it was something that David wanted to do, uh, but he couldn't do it. We'll see why in a minute. Um, but the, the task passes on to Solomon. And the task is this to build the temple of the Lord. And so David, and you may remember the story, David had brought the Ark of the Covenant uh, into the city. David had been uh, crowned as king of Israel, all Israel, in uh, what, 2 Samuel 5. And uh, David, in 2 Samuel 6, brings the Ark of the Covenant into the city. And, uh, and then when he, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, uh, David then thinks, well, I've got this palace, but the Ark of the Covenant is living in a tent in Jerusalem somewhere. And I need to do something about that. And so he wants to build this uh, temple for the Lord, a home or a house for the Lord. Um, But he wasn't able to do it. And so the job passes on to, to Solomon. Now as we look at this uh, passage, we're, we're looking at the, the preparations that are being made for the building of the temple. And the next few chapters, we're going to be talking about the, the building of the temple and the consecration of it and all that that entails. But uh, I think this passage raises for us uh, three connected issues and uh, helps us to uh, see three important things about Uh, our lives today. One is, the first is that the the promise of God is the foundation of everything. The promise of God is the foundation of everything. Uh, All of history, everything. It's all about the promise of God. Secondly, his providence, so we have his promise, but now his providence drives the fulfillment of his promises. His providence, we mean his management of The affairs of men and nations. God is in charge and control. And his providence works out for the fulfillment of his promises. And then thirdly, um, faith and trust in his promises drive our practical plans uh, using the resources that he grants us. So all of these things are connected. The promise of God, the providence of God, and then our planning and serving. The Lord. As a result, so I want to just work through those three things. First of all, uh, consider with you the the promise of God and uh, the the story of chapter five. Again, you know, it might seem to us like a rather like a rather dull account of preparatory trading arrangements <laughs> between two kings. Um, that you know, Solomon enters into this kind of treaty with Hiram uh, to get timber, and he agrees to to pay Hiram and and in goods for his household and so on but what's really behind all this is the fulfillment of God's promises and uh, I'll come to those in a minute but let me just recap what's, what this chapter is about remember that Hiram is um, he is king of a non-Israelite city Tyre in Sidon near, near, uh, near Sidon and uh, remember that so- uh, Solomon rules over Israel, but also rules over the nations, right? some, of, some of the surrounding nations. And so in chapter 4, verse 21, it says this, Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines, so east to west and north to south, um, and to the borders of Egypt to the south. So Euphrates goes from the, uh, from the north down to the east, and so it sort of bounds that region. And then south is is Egypt, and and, and to the west is is the sea and the the Philistines, the land of the Philistines on the coast. And so Hiram and Solomon have got this relationship, but what becomes clear uh, later is that Solomon is a dominant party, obviously. Uh, He is uh, in the relationship between these two kings. Solomon is what you call a a suzerain king. Um, He's the great king. And uh, Hiram is a, a vassal king. So this suzerain-vassal relationship is going on between the two kings. Um, so the vassal king is the little king. So Solomon's the great king. Hiram's the little king. And uh, the little king is paying tribute to the, the great king. And, uh, but having said that, they, they have obviously a good relationship, Hiram and Solomon. They're friends. Hiram loved David uh, chapter five verse one says so he 's well disposed towards his son Solomon, so you know he 's a friendly face for Solomon and Solomon explains to Hiram that he wants to build a temple for the Lord and Hiram suggests in verses eight and nine uh, just how uh, just what he and his people can do and what Solomon should do in return for him. Um, and basically a trade deal is struck. Between the two, Hiram will supply the timber, Solomon will supply food to Hiram's uh, household. And what follows then is that, why is it actually a huge undertaking? Um, There are 30,000 men forced into labor. Uh, This forced labor is probably uh, remaining Canaanites who are living amongst the Israelites uh, that were not driven out under Joshua fully. Uh, so, there's thirty thousand of them are put into forced labour, and uh, and used uh, in the hard graft. And then there's 150,000, you know, um, 70,000 burden bearers and 80,000 stone cutters in verse 15, um, to bring the materials to site, to the site of, from the coast to the site in Jerusalem where the the temple is going to be built. So that's the the background to this and that's what happened in the chapter but of course why is this account here why, why tell us about this rather dull trading arrangement between two kings why is that of interest to us well what drives all of this is God's promise if you look at verse 5 you'll see this the way that Solomon puts it I intend to build a house for the name of the Lord my God as the Lord said to David my father Your son, whom I will set on the throne in your place, shall build the house for my name. So here's the promise that God made to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 13. Uh, David was, as I said, was wanting to build the temple, but he couldn't. But the promise was given that your son will do it. And David's in this situation where he's anointed king and uh, the Ark of the Covenant has been brought to the city. There's peace, at least temporarily, there's peace for David and he thinks, begins to think about building this temple. But Nathan the prophet comes with an amazing prophecy. He says, you're not going to build this temple. You're not going to build a house for me, but I'm going to build a house for you. And he's thinking more about the throne you know, the household, uh, the descendants of David. And he's thinking about who's going to sit on the throne. And he's thinking, of course, in the first instance about Solomon. But in the long run, he's thinking about the eternal throne. You know, somebody's going to be on the throne forever. And it's going to be, of course, now we know the Lord Jesus Christ. Archangel Gabriel comes to Mary and says that the son that's going to be born in your womb is going to sit on the throne of his father, David. So it's Jesus, isn't it? So the prophecy is all about Jesus Christ. And the short-term prophecy is that Solomon is going to, uh, he's not named, but he is going to build uh, the temple. And uh, so this is a marvelous picture, a marvelous promise that has been given to David. David. Promise drives what Solomon is about to do. Now what we need to here's what we need to understand as as Christian people is that the, Bi- the Bible is all about how God is fulfilling everything He promised. All of the Bible is all about how He is fulfilling everything that He promised. Sometimes we can read the Bible, and we're looking for the wrong things. So, for example, um, if you think it's a book of moral principles, as many people do, you're only going to look for moral principles. And when you start doing that, you're going to get discouraged. Because you'll find that the Bible's actually full of sinners, and not people to be followed in so many ways. And, and even the world out there thinks that the Bible is a moral book to be followed. And then they'll, then they'll say, aha, well there's polygamy in the Bible, aha, there's all these awful things in the Bible, aha, ah, gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. And they're looking at the wrong thing. Because the Bible is written to show how it is in the midst of all of this mess of human existence, God is making promises and he's working them out. That's how you're supposed to read the Bible. Um, See it as a, a book where God has revealed himself. And in revealing himself, step by step, organically, the revelation growing as time goes on. You begin to see that God is working something out. And he is making promises and he is fulfilling them. Culminating in Jesus Christ. And There's more glory to come, more promises to be fulfilled yet. But that's what it's all about. And that's how you're supposed to read the Bible, and see it within the context of His promises. Um, you know, if you think it's just a book of moral principles, you're going to you're going to stumble over the you know the building plans and the the lists of materials and stuff. Why? <laughs> Why should I pay attention to all that? Well, because it's about the promises, not about the moral principles, or whatever other. Um, rubric you want to use to try and interpret scripture. It's about God and his ways and his purposes, and central to his ways and purposes are the promises that he makes. And so where we have historical accounts in the Bible of things, these are not just interesting stories to read, they're actually given given to us to see how it is that God's purposes are being worked out step by step leading ultimately to Jesus as king of kings and lord of lords. And in the end that's what Jesus is doing. He is he is kind of like Solomon but greater putting the enemy his enemies under his feet and giving peace and safety to his own people for all eternity. History, all of history, therefore, is purposeful. It's God's history. God is driving history. And therefore we need to see it not as a a set of uncontrollable, unpredictable events that we have to react to. But behind it all are the purposes of God and the promises of God leading the whole of creation to its ultimate end. Now that's a big picture to have of all of history, and your personal history. But it's one we need to get hold of. Christianity is not simply an attachment to your life. You're an attachment to God's purposes in in the whole of life, in the whole of creation. And that's the way we need to begin to see things. So the key point here is that the driver to the contents of chapter 5 is that God is working out his promises that he made to, uh, to his father David so how does he work out his promises that brings us to the second point the providence of God and uh, you will notice you may have noticed a, number, a couple of things that have happened that have to be in place for Solomon to be able to start doing this work uh, two main things number one military victory so verse 3 what does he say you know that David, my father, could not build a house for the name of the Lord his God because of the warfare with which his enemies surrounded him until the Lord put them under the soles of his feet. So there comes, David couldn't build because of the wars that are going on at the time. Now you look at 2 Samuel 7, and David was for a brief moment. Uh, At rest, there were no enemies going uh, attacking him or or Israel. And so he began to think about the temple. But as you read on from 2 Samuel chapter 7, you realize there are more battles to be had uh, in chapters 8 and 10. And at the time, the the reason for David not being allowed to, to build the temple is not given, is not specified. But now Solomon sees this clearly. He says, David could not build a house because of the warfare. Verse 3. He could not build a house because of the warfare. Now that's one of the things that is evident in the wisdom of Solomon. It's one of the things that wisdom does for for someone. Is that it enables one to assess the current circumstances... But not in a fatalistic way as Christians sometimes do. You know how sometimes Christians say things like God is up to something, but I don't know what it is. And, uh, you know, well, you know, God's got a sense of humor and that sort of stuff. You know, we kind of rattle these things off without really understanding what we're talking about. But wisdom sets... I interpret these things that are happening around us, and that, you know whether it's big things, macro things, or, or minor things, within this, the framework of his promises. And that's what Solomon is able to do. He sees the promises of God and he sees why things have to be the way they are. And wisdom works that out for him. That's an encouragement for us to grow in wisdom. We begin to have discernment and insight into the ways of God, more. So military victory has to be in place. The second thing that's in place is uh, for Solomon to be able to think about building the temple is is his own political security. And uh, we've seen how this has already played out. We've seen how in chapter 1 Adonijah, one of his sons, who as the oldest thought he had the right to, by the rule of primogeniture, uh, he ought to go to take the throne. And so he tries to take the throne um, and effectively organizes a coup in chapter one. Uh, But Solomon uh, David manages to manoeuvre so that Solomon gets onto the throne and he's anointed as king and everyone accepts it. And, uh, And so Solomon is established. So we've seen how Solomon has to be established on the throne. And then in chapter two we see how Solomon has to neutralize or even remove uh, whatever threats there are to the kingdom. And then we see in chapter 3, Solomon is fully in charge uh, and has political security. And now so Solomon now says in chapter 5, that though he has been busy, though Solomon has been busy uh, in establishing his kingdom, he attributes his current Peacefulness and rest to the Lord. The Lord has given me rest. Uh, Verse 4. But now the Lord has given me rest on every side. So Solomon's been busy, but it comes from the Lord. He sees that God has been at work in all the messy circumstances that he's been uh, involved in. Now it's interesting that because you read chapters 1 and 2 and the only time that you see the Lord, the name, Lord, capital letters, mentioned is on the lips of humans who are are invoking his name for various things. But there's nothing that God seems to be doing that's active. The narrator in 1 Kings doesn't say God did this and God does that in chapters 1 and 2. But Solomon sees it. You you might be led to believe that God is never at work because uh, we don't see God actually active in chapters 1 and 2. But Solomon sees it. He sees that God is constantly active and busy and giving him what he needs. And so in wisdom... And under the hand of God, he is able to say, the Lord has given me rest. You see, we don't, we don't need miracles, extraordinary interventions to, to believe that God is continually active. Great if we do see miracles, and we pray for healing, and all of these things, all these good things, and we should do that. But we don't need them. To know that God is at work constantly. That he is the God of providence. And he is so managing in his providence, in his management of affairs, that he is opening up the way for the fulfillment of all his promises. This is what he does. And so what Solomon sees is that though in one sense the events of his life were unpredictable and at times bring him into danger, he is able to see that God has been active in providence. And what we mean by that is just him managing things in order to bring about everything that he has promised and purposed. That's why we can say that whatever's happening in the world, whatever is reported in the news... Whatever we see on the internet, the central thing that is happening in the world is whatever God has promised. What has God promised today for the church? How about this? Matthew 28, 18 to 20. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you and behold I am with you always to the end of the age. God, the Lord Jesus Christ is with his people constantly in this process of building his church and baptizing the nations and the people of the nations. Making disciples of them. So that the kingdom of God grows. You know Jesus has promised I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. God has promised that everything will be put under his feet as king of kings and lord of lords. This is what's happening. This is what history is all about. Whatever you read in the news, whatever the world thinks is the most important thing, this is the most important thing. The building of the church of Jesus Christ. The center to all. And so with all authority, the Lord Jesus Christ br- continues to bring about all that he has promised. Well, so we've thought about God's promises, we've thought about God's providence. Finally, what about our plans? Our plans. And we need to think about planning using God's resources. Um, we, come to, we could look at all the details of this chapter, uh, Solomon has this big plan. He makes this proposition to Hiram. And, uh, but these plans are not just simply hatched out of his own imagination or from any delusions of grandeur. Rather, they're driven by the knowledge of God's promise and his understanding of God's providence. And, uh, and, so, and he realized the time is right for this to be fulfilled now, for him to, to get the greed light, as it were, to start building. And Solomon applies the wisdom to the task that uh, he's using, the gift that God has given him to work out the plans in detail. And the first thing to notice about that is that though Solomon is lord over Israel and many other nations, he does not use that power and dominion to oppress the other kings. He doesn't oppress Hiram. They seem very cooperative and friendly and they're working something out together. And there's honor and respect between them. And this just reminds us that in the kingdom of, of wisdom, which comes from God, the lives of those who are lower in authority, you and me, can be a joy and a pleasure under the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what this shows us. Uh, Solomon is open to negotiation. Though in the end, I don't know if you notice, he gets his way. <laughs> He's, he has a bit of to and fro about what to do, but in the end it's what he says goes. But he does so in, in such a wise way that keeps Hiram on side. And we see the, the wisdom of Solomon at work in this relationship. And how much more true is this of our Lord Jesus Christ? You see how Solomon operates here anticipates the yet greater blessings of the kingdom of God. So in Solomon we see those vassal kings as it were bowing the knee to Solomon and doing as he requires which of course anticipates the coming of the kingdom. So Isaiah speaking of the salvation of the Lord that is going to come in Isaiah 45 we see all these vassal kings bowing the knee. And Isaiah 45 says, I myself have sworn from my, oath, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue confess, and it shall swear allegiance. And that's taken up in the New Testament when Paul speaks about the Lord Jesus Christ who was humbled for a season. And yet, was exalted to the right hand of the Father, two, uh, Philippians chapter two, verse, verses six to eleven. And it comes to a, a climax that little passage where he says, "So at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, and every tongue conf- in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father." So Jesus is the fulfilment of all the Old Testament promises. And all the shadows and all the prefigurings is Jesus Christ is the one who is over all. And Jesus Christ has plans for his kingdom. And we too can have plans which are in accord with that plan. We are not to be passive. This is the, one of the great lessons of, of listening to or watching Solomon here. He doesn't just say, oh God has made this promise. I'll just sort of sit back and watch and see what happens. You know, he gets to he gets busy. He gets to work. Because he believes God. He's amazed by God. And he wants to play his part. And today, we know what Jesus wants. We know that he wants to disciple the nations. We know that he wants to build the church. We know that he wants to present every man and woman mature in Christ Jesus. To grow and to flourish. And bear fruit in their lives. And so in the confidence of those promises. And the fact that he is the God of providence. We can set about planning what needs to be done. And we should. We should be busy as Christians. As a church. Busy in outreach. Busy in evangelism. Busy with our families. Training and teaching our children. Busy encouraging each other. Busy helping each other, serving each other. Maybe that's something that we've not fully grasped as a church. I I wonder about that. Um, Partly because as a minister, I'm not sure I fully grasped that as a minister. That if we truly have the word of God on our hearts... If we believe the promises of God and we know that God is a God of providence then shouldn't we be busy in the things of God? And we get energized, you see, when we believe God, we get energized to do the work and play our part in this great work that he calls us to. What are you doing? Are you serving the Lord? Are you committed to his promises? Do you desire to play your part? formulate plans that are in accordance with his promises. That's what we need to be doing. Maybe you can play a part in this. May God grant us grace to to do so. Let's pray as we finish. Father, we thank you so much for this passage. Thank you for the way in which uh, it's not simply a list of jobs and workers and materials, but it's an expression of the way in which you fulfill your promises. And you manage things marvelously to your glorious ends. We pray you'd help us to be people who are willing to play our part in obedience to your word and commitment to your, your, your plans and purposes. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.